a trail that is becoming very well worn with UK craft whiskey distillers is, while the first barrels of whiskey are aging, the distillery starts making gin to keep the business afloat. But some, along with producing gin, are selling new make spirit, whiskey that hasn't been aged. And indeed, a few UK distilleries such as Johnny Walker, Holyrood and Cotswold make it as part of the regular lineup. But these are just side projects. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of interest from UK consumers to justify treating new make spirits any other way. And let's face it, for a spirit that makes you think of something wild and uncaged, the term new make is about as exciting as a bowl of cold oatmeal. Across the pond, however, it's a different story. Selling under moonshine or white whiskey is huge. How huge? The US distillery, which leads in visitor numbers, is one in Tennessee making flavoured moonshine with double the amount of visitors of all Scottish distilleries combined. No ageing, no storing casks, no worries about greedy angels. It does sound tempting to make. And if you're already making whiskey, you already have the equipment and skills. Ingredients, same as whiskey. So what are they doing different over there to bring in the huge sales? Boils down to one thing, my friends. Attitude, spelled with a capital A. Hi, I'm Vela Mitrich, editor and host of Distiller's Journal. And I'm Ross McPherson. If you have ever wondered more about the history of moonshine and what to do with a bottle of the potent elixir, look no further than John Schlimm's Moonshine, a celebration of America's original rebel spirit. In today's episode, we'll be speaking to the Harvard graduate from his home in Western Pennsylvania. Let's give you a quick history lesson which will explain how Shine got to the States. In Scotland, Making illegal whiskey gave farmers a way of using a surplus grain for a product that often at times was worth much more than they would receive from the actual grain. How many of these were illegal? Well, in the 1820s, around 14,000 illegal stills were being confiscated each year. During periods of major Scottish immigration to the American colonies and then to the fledgling United States, these farmers brought with them the skill to make whiskey along with the tradition of doing it illegally and a disdain for those who enforce laws against the practice. In looking at ethnic immigration maps from 1700 to 1800, the Scots mostly settled in the Appalachian Mountain region of Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, especially in regions that would later become West Virginia and Kentucky all states which became famous for moonshine. Although Hollywood and TV might portray the making of moonshine in the USA as something only redneck good old boys do, in reality, all poor communities in the states had someone making a type of moonshine to supply their community with cheap booze. Indeed, my grandfather made moonshine in a chicken coop in San Diego during Prohibition with grapes left over from his illegal winemaking. It was only until my father, then a young boy, failed to keep a check on the still's pressure and it exploded that my grandfather's side business came to an end. Truth be told, the explosion didn't do the chickens any favors either. 
Well, first of all, it's so great to be with you. And this is going to be such a fun interview. I think American Moonshine really stands out just because of the incredible history and mythology that has been built up around it. And what I tried to do with my book Moonshine in the, the first half, which is the history portion, is really show how literally from the beginning of the United States, and even before that, <laughs> um, all the way to present day, Moonshine has run parallel to our history. It's been with us, you know, even before the beginning. And uh, since it's so intimately woven throughout our history, I, I think that, you know, more so than really any other uh, alcoholic beverage, I think that has really helped it to stand out. And of course, it's a rebel. It has this controversial reputation uh, in kind of the funnest way possible, right? And, you know, it's the ultimate outlaw. <laughs> and so that has certainly helped to boost its reputation and really transform it into an icon uh, that uh, is, is unparalleled. Would you say what defines Moonshine is the fact that it hasn't been barrel-aged or that a tax hasn't been paid, or both? Well, I think it's it's both. But honestly, I also think, you know, what defines moonshine, again, is that legacy, that outlaw <laughs> rebel legacy. Uh, because when you look at something like beer, which is in my family history, uh, vodka, gin, whiskey, they're all great. We love them all. <laughs> but none of them have the story that moonshine has. What really sets it apart is that incredible and quite colorful <laughs> legacy in history. In the big scheme of distilling, aged spirits is a relatively new idea when people transporting distilled spirits noticed that the longer it was in an oak cask, the better it tasted. Do you think in the early days of American moonshine, anyone drinking it would have thought, why, this is a fine tasting drink, or was all reason just to get drunk? I love this question. It's such a fun question. Uh, you know, I don't even know if today someone would necessarily say it's a fine tasting drink in its purest form. It's all about that first sip and that amazing burn down your throat. And that's so incredible. But I, I think ultimately the buzz, I mean, in one sip, you start having that buzz. Like it is uh, zero to 100 in one sip, which is really quite cool. But I have to think that, you know, because of, you know, Moonshine has stayed relatively unchanged in its purest form since the beginning. So I can't imagine the flavor has changed too much on it. But sure, I, I think, um, you know, any old time moonshine loving drinker would say, yes, they love the taste, they love the burn. But ultimately, it's that amazing feeling you get. With American whiskeys, maize is the fundamental grain used. And it's hard finding any North American spirit which doesn't have some corn mash in it. How fundamental was Indian maize to the development of American moonshine? Well, it was really crucial. You know, if you look back to uh, George Thorpe, who was one of the first who made moonshine uh, back in 1620, uh, the key ingredient was that maize. 
And, uh, you know, that really became the secret ingredient in a very simple recipe that basically is just the corn, the water, some yeast, uh, you know, very few ingredients. And that has remained unchanged for the most part all of these years. So it really, uh, Moonshine owes its beginning um, big time uh, to that Indian maize. Although illegal moonshine was always part of America's drinking fabric, and indeed the first group of people who wanted to march on the nation's capital were Western Pennsylvania moonshiners during the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794, it maintained a semi-low profile until Prohibition from 1920 to 1933, which is considered the first golden age of American moonshine. So this was such a fun chapter to write because the ultimate lesson at the end is when you tell people they're not allowed to do something, <laughs> it's the surest way uh, to make sure they're going to do it, right? When um, the United States government outlawed alcohol, so prohibition, which has you know such a dirty word <laughs> anywhere across the world, right? Especially with alcohol, when prohibition began and endured for that um, chunk of years, uh, it became an incredible trend a, a total boom for all the outlaw moonshiners out there to make it. And demand grew even more because, again, people were told you couldn't have it. So for those budding entrepreneurs uh, out there at the time uh, who were rebels themselves, it was an amazing time. And it really did become that first golden age uh, that really, really planted a lot of the seeds of the mythology around what we think of moonshine as today. During Prohibition, with demand exceeding supply, corners were cut like never before. During production, everything from industrial alcohol to battery acid to even car radiators were added to the hooch to increase the kick. Do you have any idea what battery acid would bring to the liquor? I do not. And I, I can honestly say I've never tried battery acid. I would hope nobody does ever again. That seems a little desperate to me that they would go to. In the book, you'll read there were some other uh, ingredients that were uh, pretty crazy as well that were used. So I, I don't know. I have to think if they thought it was a kick, uh, a lot of that had to be psychological or, you know, the kick was they fell right over and probably never got up again. I guess people were experimenting with a lot of different things, but I, I'm glad that part of those days is over. <laughs> One thing Hollywood has jumped on over the years in both movies and TV are bootleggers and souped up Model T's and other cars trying to outrun Johnny B. Law. Did American NASCAR racing really come from this time or is it just a good story? No, it is the truth. And it's one of the, the most incredible parts of Moonshine's story that this uh, icon in the beverage world gave birth to an icon in the sports world being NASCAR. And really, it came about because during Prohibition, the makers of Moonshine needed a way to get their moonshine to the speakeasies and other establishments and ultimately the drinkers, the, the customers. And so they would use uh, bootleggers in their hot rod cars who would race through the mountains <laughs> and, you know, often with the authorities in hot pursuit of them. 
And most of the time they would outrun the authorities. Uh, so these, you know, especially men at the time who were the drivers, who were the bootleggers driving these hot rods, they developed a little bit of an ego, <laughs> which tends to happen, right? And so they decided to take that ego and take the quite amazing driving skills they had developed to the fields, to local fields where the first racetracks uh, were created. In all those great fields and pastures, uh, that's where the first races began. And, you know, as that went on and um, it became more sophisticated over time, some entrepreneurs came in and realized, hey, there is an amazing spark of a business here. And eventually that turned into what we know as NASCAR today. Prohibition ends, but US federal laws prohibit moonshine until 2010. Why is that? Well, anyone who has the answer to a lot of the things government does, <laughs> they hold the key to the universe. Uh, you know, there are a lot of answers we'll never have to some of these laws. Um, that's a really good question. I would love to sit down with, uh, you know, the lawmakers who just kind of kept that law intact for all those years. But luckily, it's gone. And so now we, we get to quite freely enjoy moonshine. Um, and really, now more than ever, it is having a new golden age. You have distilleries popping up everywhere, which is really cool to see. I actually spent a lot of time researching this law and couldn't find anything except it existed. What made moonshine moonshine from a U.S. legal sense, I could not find. So at this point, it's probably a good time to ask, what defines modern moonshine? I think that you would get a different answer from probably just about every distiller. But I think what defines moonshine is just that pure original recipe that's been used from the beginning uh, with the corn and the water and very few other ingredients. It's about that purity. Now, today we have moonshine, flavored moonshines, all different kinds of flavored moonshines. And in, in the second half of my book, which I know we'll talk about, I not only created moonshine cocktails, but a lot of different infused moonshines. I think there would be the purists out there that would say, moonshine is just straight up, 100 proof, nothing in it, and just knock it back. Um, one sip at a time. It would be hard to knock back a whole <laughs> shot glass of that. I think it might burst into flames. But I think it's really the purity. And again, that history and that legacy, it all goes together. Tennessee's old smoky distilleries, the world's largest producers of moonshine, once again last year were the most visited distilleries in the world, with 5.7 million visitors. That is double all of the visitors at Scotland's distilleries. What is the appeal? I think the appeal is the fact that, you know, moonshine really is this iconic, fabulous outlaw rebel that has this great history, both here in the United States and now elsewhere around the world. And I think it's in terms of the world of alcohol, it's, the, it's one of the ultimate celebrities. So it's no different than any Hollywood celebrity that people just want to see. They want to go to the movies. They want to watch the, you know, binge watch the TV shows. Moonshine is no different. It's that A-list 
uh, celebrity that everyone wants to try and enjoy. And I think especially today, uh, with all the different flavored moonshines and the different moonshine cocktails, you can go into almost any restaurant anymore and there's at least one moonshine cocktail on that recipe. There's the opportunity for just about anyone to enjoy moonshine and enjoy it in a way that works for them. In your book, about half of it is devoted to drink recipes using moonshine as a key ingredient. Did you come up with these recipes and did you try each and every one? I did come up with the recipes. I did try all the recipes and I had a lot of fun. And I certainly <laughs> didn't have to look far for willing volunteers to help taste test. So that was a really great and fun process. How does using moonshine affect a cocktail recipe? it becomes the base, you know, it becomes the fire <laughs> of that recipe. Uh, and then it's really about what you uh, mix and match in with it. In the first uh, part of the, the cocktail section, I do a lot of different infusions. So, and I really thought outside of the box. So there are infusions using sage and basil and cucumbers, but also jelly beans and marshmallows and, and, and even like gummy candies, lavender, you know, different herbs, because I really wanted, I wanted this book to be a very definitive book for anyone who loves moonshine, but anyone who also just loves history as well as the history of alcohol. And so I tried to create the most beautiful book I could. I wanted it from the very beginning. I knew the first half would be history told in a fun way and in a way that someone could really sit down in an afternoon or two and easily read through it with pictures because we all love pictures. But for that second part with the cocktails and the infusions, I really wanted there to be something for everyone there. And I wanted people to ultimately have fun with those recipes. And, you know, there are going to be people who like some of the recipes and don't like other recipes. That's the beauty of sampling and trying um, all of the different recipes. So ultimately, I wanted to create a party in a book. <laughs> what would you say modern legal moonshine is closer to in regards to flavor? Vodka or the bourbon whiskey? Well, ultimately, I would say it, it stands alone, pretty much like all of those do in its flavor. But if I had to say which of those is maybe a cousin, I, I would say vodka would be the close cousin. And in fact, um, you know, all of the recipes in the book, if you don't have moonshine handy, you could use vodka to, to substitute. Vodka would work equally well with them. The beauty of both vodka and moonshine is they really are great bases and foundations for cocktails from which you can create pure magic in a glass. As we talked about, American moonshine has its roots in corn mash. But some modern moonshine distillers use white sugar as the main ingredient. Are you comfortable with this? I am, you know, look, I am, I'm an artist as well as an author. So I, I love, uh, you know, creativity, thinking outside of the box, which certainly the cocktail section of this book is that. So look, I, I love that people are having fun with it. People are experimenting, figure out, figuring out new ways to bring more people literally to the bar to enjoy it. I would, far from me to judge anyone, uh, certainly when I'm putting jelly beans and marshmallows and other things in it. So I, I think it's really fantastic. 
Which modern distillers do you think highlight the potential of moonshine? I have a policy from the beginning that I never pick and choose. I, I tend to think they're all doing great jobs uh, in their own way. And even in the book, I, I really did not uh, mention too many by name, uh, just because I, I really, this book is about celebrating moonshine in its uh, totality. And I really think all of the distilleries, whether they're huge or the, the small one-room distilleries that are popping up in you know, a lot of our small towns, um, I think they're all fantastic in their own way. I'm a cheerleader for all of them. Jack Daniels, Jim Beam and other big boys are making what they call white whiskey. Are you surprised that they both jumped on this? No, not at all. I, I think that's good business. And I think that you've got to continually taking steps forward and rethinking and reimagining and reinventing. That's the great entrepreneurial spirit that the moonshiners always have had those farmers way back when and uh, others in the backwoods and haulers uh, that made the moonshine. First and foremost, they were really smart and wise entrepreneurs. Not only did they know what tasted good and what felt good, but they knew how to do business in a really amazing way. So I think, uh, you know, the companies you just named as well as others, they're just carrying on that spirit and that literally that spirit and that tradition and and again making it available in new ways to even more people which is awesome The Distillers Journal podcast production of Ruby Media produced and hosted by me Vela Mitrovich Sound engineering is by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young, but the executive producer, Rory Harris. I'd like to give a special thanks to John Schlim, author of Moonshine, a celebration of America's original rebel spirit, our sponsors, and most of all to you, our listening compadres. Have a good one.